This morning, I want to warn you about one of the greatest dangers in the Christian life. It's, uh, it's a subtle danger, but it's a big one. It's the danger of losing your awe of God because you grow too familiar with God. Now, none of us wants to lose our awe of God, but it's human tendency that the more familiar we become with something, the more it loses its awe. In fact, I think what we're here to celebrate today as a country is a perfect case in point. Today is Independence Day, 4th of July, celebrating the freedom that we have as a country. And, and I, I pray you're doing it big because we have a lot to celebrate as a, as a country. We have people who have worked so hard to ensure our freedom, protect our freedom, and we should celebrate those people. I, I pray you find somebody in the military, give them a big old pat on the back, tell them thank you for what you do because it makes a big difference. We, we love celebrating those of us, or those, the people who have secured our freedom, but sometimes, oddly enough, we celebrate those who work so hard to secure our freedom and we don't even value the thing they work to secure. We, we just don't even value freedom. We totally take it for granted. So the vast majority of you watching this this morning, especially if you're in the United States of America, you woke up this morning and you got to choose what clothes you wanted to wear. You got to choose what you wanted to eat for breakfast. You got to choose who you're going to worship this morning. You got to choose where you're going to live. You got to choose where you're going to work. I mean, you just got all kinds of freedoms and you totally take it for granted. It's just the air that you breathe. You breathe. You don't even notice it. It doesn't awe you. But I guarantee you, if you were to go to a ceremony, a swearing in of citizenship of the United States of America and listen to some of those stories, those people do not take our freedom for granted. They are in awe. They weep as they recount the story because many of them grew up in countries where from the very moment they woke up, they were told what clothes they had to wear what types of food they were going to get to eat, what God they had to worship, where they were going to have to work, where they were going to have to live. No freedoms. They were oppressed and contained. And they've worked so hard to come to this country. And finally, they got the moment where they're sworn in and they celebrate freedom. They are in awe of the freedom that you and I just so easily take for granted. You know, just for us, it's normal. It's lost its awe. And I think we're in grave danger of losing all. And it happens in all kinds of ways. It's, and not just freedom. I mean, it's just, just the homes that we live in, it happens to us. I remember the first home we bought. It was a, a little 1,100 square foot home here in Arlington. And my wife and I, we've been living in an apartment for about nine months. We were newlyweds and we bought our first home. And I remember I was so in awe that we owned a home. The bank owned the home, but we got to live in a home that we called our own. I remember I would like every day wake up and I would look at the backyard and go, that backyard is mine. That tree, that's my tree. You know, I was just amazed at the fact that I got to live in this home that, that we weren't walled up against another unit, that we had a front yard and a backyard. And it was just incredible to me that we lived in this home for about a year or two. And then something would break and you had to fix it and then just the wear and tear and you just, it just got normal. And, and after a couple of years, you know, well, yeah, sure, you know, we live in this home. A few years later, like, I think we might need a bigger home. I mean, it was just, it wasn't enough after a while because the awe faded away. It was familiar and normal. I, I remember the first car that we bought when we were married together, it was a, it was a Toyota Sienna minivan. And we thought we had hit the jackpot. I remember the all I had the first day I hit the button and the door went automatically open. I was just like, I could not believe that a car would open its doors automatically for me. It was just the craziest thing ever. I was in awe of this minivan for about a year or two. And then I remember thinking, yeah, you know, cool, whatever. This door, it opens automatically. It's totally normal. And a few years later, Virginia, how much longer do we have to drive a stinking minivan? I mean, it was just like totally changed. It all left because it became normal. 
Now listen, I, I know there are all kinds of things that we can lose our all for when they become familiar. And, and there is one that is so much worse than losing your all over a home or over a car or even over our freedom. And it's what I said at the beginning. It is so dangerous for us to lose our all of Almighty God. We don't intend for it to happen, but we just become so familiar with being around God that all of a sudden it no longer amazes us. We get to pray. We get to approach the very throne room of grace with confidence and be with God. And it's just normal. He's just God. We get to come together at church and worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Or you get to watch it in your home. Piped into your home is a worship service of the Almighty King. And, you know, whatever. Like, there's a whole bunch of them. I can get anyone I want on TV right now. It's just normal. You know, we're just celebrating God. The Bible tells us that we have the very spirit of God dwelling inside of us. I mean, if we were a Jew back in the Old Testament times, we couldn't even fathom the idea of being that close, not even near God, but in us, God in us. And we experience that day in and day out as believers in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't even amaze us anymore because it's just God in us. It's just normal. Let me just tell you how messed up it is when we can refer to God as just God and being with God is just normal. You know, we've lost our awe of God and there's an incredible danger when we lose our awe of God. In fact, this is the first thing I want you to write down. So be right up here on your screen. Here's what I want you to write down. When we lose our awe of God, we lose our faith in God. I want you to chew on that one for a little bit. When we lose our awe of the majesty of God, we can lose our faith in God. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to immediately abandon your faith in God and go off and start worshiping a different God. What I am saying is when you, when you forget that he's majestic and supreme and infinite and rules over all things and knows all things, then when you have your troubles and your crises, if you forget that, you do not turn to him in faith. You lose your faith in God's ability to be there for you. When you lose your awe of God, you will lose your faith in God. And that's when all our problems will begin. This is exactly what the prophet Amos has to say to the nation of Israel in Amos chapter four. He's gonna be talking about their problem. They've lost their awe of God. And he's gonna explain to them there were three results of their loss of the awe of God, three things that destroyed them. It it led, first of all, to corrupt morals. Then it led to counterfeit worship. And then it led to a calloused heart. Those were the three things that took place when they lost their awe of God. Now, if you didn't write those down, don't worry. I'm going to walk. That's the whole sermon. I'm walking through those three things that they lost. Here's the first one. I want you to write this down. The first result of an all-less faith is corrupt morals. You will lose your moral compass the moment you lose your awe of God. What was right is going to seem wrong, and what's wrong is going to seem right. Everything will get discombobulated. This is the very place that Amos starts in chapter 4. He's coming down upon some people who had lost their moral compass. They had completely distorted what was reality and what was right and good. It's found in Amos chapter 4. Open your Bible, if you will. Amos chapter 4. We'll continue in our sermon series as we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Amos. And in chapter 4, we're picking up the idea that we left off at the end of of last week in chapter 3. So last week we talked about how punishment was coming upon the nation of Israel because God had been so good to them, but they turned their back on him and they chose to look for opulence and luxury and all this stuff instead of obedience to God. And this really, verses one through three, is a continuation of that thought. You're going to see their corrupt morals as they've abandoned their God who'd been so good to them. Let's, Let's read the verses, verses one through three. Here's what it says. 
Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Now, now stop there for a second. So what you see Amos coming at right from the very beginning is this corrupt morality of the people of Samaria, the nation of Israel. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Now, what he's talking about when he says cows of Bashan, he's talking about the rich women in the city of Samaria. Now, I'm not going to take the time to explain how that refers to rich women because my mama told me when I was young, don't ever say the word cow and woman in the same sentence. So I'm going to leave that alone. You're going to have to trust me. That's who he's referring to. The cows of Bashan. This is the, the rich women who were abusing their privileges of wealth. When they should have been helping the needy around them, they're oppressing the poor. They're crushing the needy. Their moral compass is completely off. They're even telling their husbands, hey, bring me another drink. Serve me. I mean, just completely off in their, their moral compass of what was right and wrong. Why? Because they'd lost their awe of God. They thought that all of life was about getting more, feeling better. It was all about them. When you lose your awe of God, and the first result is going to be corrupt morals. But that's just the first, and I don't want to spend much time on that one because I think he really starts to dig in in the second one. The second thing that Amos is about to tell us, the second result of an all-is faith is counterfeit worship. It's when we act like we're worshiping God, but our worship is fake and empty. When you do not have all of God, you cannot rightly worship God. It's impossible. This is what he gets to in verses four and five. Let's keep on reading the text. See what he says next. He says, come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. Now, it's a little bit difficult to see what he's saying here because of some of the terms used. But what he's saying is your worship is broken. That's what he talks about. He says, come to Bethel, come to Gilgal. So what he's referring to is the places of worship in the nation of Israel. You won't know it until you remember a little history. I explained this a couple of weeks ago, but as a way of reminder, you had King David. King David brought all 12 tribes together, formed the nation of Israel, but his grandson, Rehoboam, was not a good leader, and he split the nation into two. You had Israel to the north, and you had Judah to the south. In fact, I want you to look at this map right now. You can see up on your screen here. You can see the nation divided. Here's Israel to the north then Judah to the south. If you notice in the southern section, you'll see a crown there and it'll say Jerusalem. That was the holy city where the holy temple was in Judah. But a little above it, you're gonna see the nation, the city of Bethel. And you'll see a cow sitting on top of the nation of Bethel. And then if you look all the way to the north of Israel, you're gonna see at the very top another cow and you're gonna see the name Dan. What that's referring to is that the, the new king of the nation of Israel, the dude's name was Jeroboam, he said, I, I don't want my people going back to Jerusalem to worship because if they go back to Jerusalem and worship, then they may defect from the nation of Israel. They may go back to the rightful king from the line of David and I can't have my people leaving. So I'm going to set up new places of worship. I'm going to set up Bethel close to Jerusalem so that the people can go there and worship and not have to go down to Jerusalem. And then for those of you who live up in the north, I'm even going to give you a bonus place. I'm going to give you Dan. And the cow is there because he set up a golden calf in both places and told the people, this is your God. This is Yahweh God. Go worship him there. So he set up fake places of worship when God had commanded them to go to Jerusalem to worship. Now, this, this was not any kind of religious move. This was political maneuvering. He's trying to protect his own backside as the new king of Israel. 
And he actually entices them to worship an idol in the name of worship of Yahweh, and they buy it, hook, line, and sinker. Their worship is broken, it's fake, it's false, it's not done according to God's ways. But that wasn't the only place where their worship was fake and false and counterfeit. It was also not just in where they worshiped, it was in how they worshiped. They, they worshiped in a way that was completely at odds with the law of God given to them through Moses. You, you really see it in the second part of verse four when he says, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Now, why this is wrong is because in the law of God, in the book of Moses, which has given us the first five books of the Old Testament, it tells them to bring their, their sacrifice once a year, not every morning. And they were supposed to bring the tithes of all their produce in every three years, not every three days. In other words, they were doing 365 times more than was required, what was required in the law of God. To which you go, okay, yeah, but what's the big deal about that? I mean, is it wrong for them to want to do more? Well, no, it's not wrong to want to worship God more unless the motive is wrong. What you're going to discover very quickly is that they were not giving 365 times more sacrifices and tithes because they loved God. They were doing it because they loved themselves and they liked how it made them look and how it made them feel. That's what he was getting at in verse five. Look at that verse again with me. Reread it. It says this. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. He talks about free will offerings. Now, free will offerings are simply offerings that are done that are not required. It's out of your own free will. It was just a way of saying, God, I delight in you. I love you. I want to express my worship of you. So this was supposed to be something private between you and God, just saying, God, I just want you to know how much I love you. But that's not what they were doing. He says, proclaim your free will offerings. Publish them for the world to see, for so you love to do. What he's saying is you guys come and you worship in such a way that everybody can see it because this really isn't about God. This is about you. It's all a show and a spectacle to make you look good. You know what this teaches me about their worship? Their worship was all about them and it was nothing about their God. Their worship was about what made them look good. That's why he says, for so you love to do. It was about what made them feel good. I mean, how messed up is it when we turn worship of God into what makes us feel good? Now, now, before we're quick to grab our stones to throw at the nation of Israel, we better be really cautious because we might find some stones come flying back at us. Because here's the truth, and I'm not trying to get up in your business here, but here's the truth. I think a lot of us are guilty of making worship more about us than about God. Let me ask you a question. Just, I want you to be honest with yourself. Has there ever been a time when you were singing a song of worship, declaring truth to Almighty God, singing a song to God, and your mind is completely somewhere else? You're sitting there thinking about lunch. Like, well, I wonder what I'm going to have for lunch. Maybe a sandwich, you know, some Fritos. You're just completely thinking about something else. You're, you're sitting there singing a song of praise to God, and you're thinking about that argument you had with your kid the day before. You're not thinking about God. Some of you will go to a church and you're sitting there singing a song about God going, dude, she's pretty hot. I mean, you're just like completely off. You're not even thinking about God anymore. That's counterfeit. Or, or how many of you have had a moment when the Holy Scriptures are being read? This is God himself speaking to us and you're not paying a lick of attention to his word at all. You're just checking out. 
I mean, there's some of you, you're so, especially some teenagers out there, you got your phone, you're acting like you're looking on your Bible app and you're scrolling through Instagram. You're not even paying attention to the word of God. You're thinking playing Fruit Ninja on your phone, acting like you're all, yeah, amen, amen. You're not even paying attention to God himself speaking. That's counterfeit worship. Or have you ever had the moment when you walked out of a worship service and you evaluated the quality of that worship service by how it made you feel. Man, that worship service was amazing. It was lit, dude. Reggie was on fire. That brother was bringing, I just felt like I was just drifted up into the heavens, man. It was so amazing. Man, the word came in, it just, it spoke to me and it moved me and I was so encouraged. Man, that was a great worship service. Or, or maybe on the other side of that, you know, I just didn't get much out of it today. It just wasn't great. You know, I don't know. It just felt a little dead. There was no energy. Some of the voices were a little pitchy. And man, Jason, he just didn't bring it today. He left it at home or something. I don't know what happened, but that was, that was a dud. And, and we end up evaluating the quality of a worship service by how it makes us feel instead of how it makes him feel. You want to know what that is? That's counterfeit worship. And lest, lest you feel attacked, like I'm saying it's you and not me, I got to go ahead and confess, I am right there with you. I've already confessed to the church a couple months ago how during the pandemic especially, so much of my worship experience and the recordings was a production and I'm sitting there evaluating the quality while we're singing songs of praise to God. I'm not even worshiping. I don't feel a thing in my heart toward God because it's just an act. It's just a production. I mean, that's dead counterfeit worship. And if I were being really honest with you, there are too many times when I'm more concerned about what you think of, of my sermon than what he thinks about my sermon. There are times when I take more delight at you laughing at my jokes than him smiling at what I said. And that is counterfeit worship from this pastor up here. I admit it and confess it. I think we have a problem because we've lost our awe of God and we worship him with a fake faith and worship. And, and I want to say another truth here because I think it's such a danger for us. I think we can get so wrapped up in the act of worship that we can completely forget the object of worship. I, I want us to wrestle with that truth because the moment we make it about the act of worship, the experience of worship, how I feel about worship, we have taken our eyes off the object of our worship who is almighty God himself. Worship is not about you or about me or about Reggie or a band or anybody. It is about him. It is about almighty God. It should be focused on him, not how it makes us feel, but how it makes him feel. It is an audience of one and we're all just performers raising up our praise to him. Now, I'm not saying sometimes it doesn't feel good because sometimes it does feel amazing and you leave encouraged and it's an amazing experience, but that's just a beautiful byproduct to worshiping an infinite God. But that's not the goal. The goal is pleasing him. We must never lose our awe of him. And when we do, the result is going to be counterfeit worship. The result is going to be corrupt morals. But then there's a third, a last thing that happens that I want you to write down. The third result of an allless faith is a calloused heart. It is our heart growing so cold and hard that God can't even break through and get our attention anymore because we are no longer in awe of him. 
What you're going to hear Amos do in a little bit is talk about this very thing, how God tried over and over and over again to get their attention, to knock on the door of their heart, saying, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. But they had no awe of God, and therefore their hearts were so callous they would not turn to him. That's what he gets at in verses 6 through 11. Let's keep on reading. Listen to what it says. He said, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another. One field would have rain and the the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. What he's doing here is he's saying over and over again, look at all the measures I went through to get your attention. This is really a counterbalance to what we spoke about last week. If you remember last week, he was talking about, guys, don't you remember all the good ways that I blessed you? Don't you remember how I came to you? I chose you. You were the one nation of all the earth that I chose to know and I pursued you and I rescued you from your slavery and I brought you into the promised land. Don't you remember how I blessed you? And now he's saying, I played good cop. I also played bad cop. Can't you see all the ways I disciplined you to try to get your attention yet you would not turn to me. I tried blessing and nothing. I tried curse and nothing. You're that thick-headed, he's saying. This is how callous our hearts can get toward God. What's interesting about this is just how severe everything was. He's hidden every single aspect of life. Verse six, he's talking about famine where there's no food. That's when he says you lack bread. When it says cleanness of teeth, the reason the teeth are clean is because there's no food to eat to get your teeth dirty. Utter and total famine. In verses seven and eight, he talks about drought. There's no rain and it came at the worst time right before the, the, the seeds most needed the rain to germinate to produce a crop. And yet they did not return. In verse nine, he talks about the stuff that's gonna destroy whatever is left over from the crop. So the food source would be gone. Verse 10, he talks about warfare and death. Verse 11, he talks about natural disaster. So he's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, about how it rains sulfur, natural disaster. So he said, famine, drought, food shortage, war, natural disaster. He said, I tried every trick in the book and I couldn't get your attention because you would not return to me. Now, what makes this so pathetic is that natural instinct for humanity when we're in a time of crisis is actually to turn to God. There are people who like hardly ever pray. But the moment a dear loved one is sick or a moment something bad has happened, they lose their job, they begin to pray because they rightly know that they got nowhere else to turn but the one who has all power. I I can't tell you how many times I've been at church and I've preached and afterwards someone has come down in tears and they'll tell me, man, I haven't been in church in a long time, but I don't know where to turn. I need God. Would you pray for me, pastor? And they're right in recognizing that when we're in our times of crisis, let's go to the one who has all power. But what's so crazy is that here is Israel, the very people of God, and when natural instinct would drive them to turn to God, when there's famine and drought and war, natural disaster and all that, they still refuse to turn to God. Their hearts are that calloused. And you want to know why? For the very thing I said at the very beginning, the moment we lose our awe of God, we lose our faith in God. 
And that's exactly what happened to them. They'd lost their awe of God, therefore they had lost their faith in God and they would not turn to him. This is why Amos, when he finishes, he wants to bring them back to say, do not forget who your God is. That's what he says in verses 12 and 13. Listen to what it says. It says, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. That last verse, verse 13, that was the whole point of the chapter. Do not forget the awesome nature of your God. He says, look at who your God is. It's like God himself is speaking. He says, hey, Israel, who formed the mountains and who brought the wind? Let me give you a heads up. Wasn't you, it was me. He said, who's the one who knows what you think before you even think it? It's not you, it's me. He says, who can turn night into darkness and, or night into light and light into darkness? You can't do it. It's me. Who can tread on the heights? Who, there is no peak he cannot climb and overcome. He said, it's me, Israel. You've forgotten who I am. And he says, who's the Lord, the God of hosts? It's not you, Israel. It's me. He's saying, you have forgotten who I am. You've lost your awe of me. Now that last title, the Lord, the God of hosts. It's a beautiful title because that, that term, the God of hosts, literally means the God of the angel armies, the God of the host of angels that are 10,000s upon 10,000s and 10,000s of these supernatural creatures that are completely at God's beck and call. And if we could just get a glimpse of his majesty and who he commands, we would be in awe. Actually, I had a unique moment where I got a glimpse of the God of the angel armies. Now, I, I've been here now for 16 years at this church. I've preached a lot of sermons. I've never told the story I'm about to tell you because it's a weird story. But it's something that happened to me where God had to put some awe back in me. Happened when I was in college. It was my senior year of college. And uh, I had only been a believer for about three and a half years. But I had grown a lot in my faith. And at the time, I was a student pastor at a local church there in Waco where I went to school at Baylor. But this particular day, I was helping out a fellow college student. Her home church back in Houston was doing what's called a Disciple Now weekend with the students. And she'd asked me and a number of other uh, college students to go over there to help lead it. And, and we were in Houston and leading this Disciple Now. And I, I got to tell you, man, Satan was working overtime on me and just sowing all kinds of lies. One thing I've learned about the devil and how he works his number one tactic is to put little lies and implant them in your head and watch them just germinate. In this particular day, man, he was just putting in doubt and fear and anxiety and frustration over and over in my heart, just telling me I'm not good enough. No one likes me. No one cares about me. Everyone's pushing me aside. And these little subtle things that were happening, and I was just interpreting them according to the lies that he was feeding my head. And I was just buying it. Earlier that day, we had been in our little breakout groups and I'm leading, and remember, I'm a student pastor at this time and I'm leading a group of students and there were a couple of questions that were asked and I didn't have the answer at all. I mean, I've only been a believer for three and a half years, but I didn't know how to answer them and I felt so small, so foolish, like surely I should be able to answer this question. I'm a pastor and I just felt inadequate. And then a little bit later on, we're playing games and we're sitting around the table and it's like, I, I just, you know, I just, it probably didn't happen, but it feels like the kids are flocking to everybody else and I'm just standing there like, do, 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 you know, like no one wants to come hang with me. I just, just feel all this doubt. 
all this frustration. And then I look over and my college friends who come with me, they're just hanging out over there having a good old conversation. And here I am left out and I'm feeling all sorry for myself and I'm just frustrated and angry and hurt. And that night I was staying at someone's house and I was in a bed all by myself, a little twin bed. And it was late, but I couldn't sleep. I just some of the anxiety from the day. And I'm laying there and I close my eyes. And when I closed my eyes, I felt something in the room. I don't know if this ever happened to you before, where you just like feel like someone's in the room. So I opened them and I started looking around and, and there was nothing in the room. And so I closed my eyes. And when I closed my eyes, I, I just had this image of a dark figure that had come into the room and had come upon my chest and was, was pressing into me. I opened my eyes again because I could feel it, but I couldn't see it. So I closed my eyes again and I felt a press on my chest, like almost like my air was being taken out and I, I felt panicked. I didn't know what was going on. There was nothing there, but I could feel it. And so I just started praying and, and I didn't have this elaborate King James prayer. I, I just said, oh God, help me. I don't know what's going on, help me. And it wasn't long after that prayer that here I am, I'm laying in this bed, feeling that pressure. My eyes are closed and it was almost like the ceiling just dissipated. And, and it was like I was looking up into the heavens and I saw this quantity of angels that I can't even describe to you just start circling their way down to my room. I opened my eyes to see if it was real and, and it was a normal ceiling. There was nothing else there. And then I closed my eyes and there it was again. I could see the expanse of the heavens. Now I wasn't sleeping because I could keep opening my eyes and closing them. But every time I closed them, I could see that expanse in the heavens and I could see the angels getting closer and closer and they circled down. And the moment they came in, whatever that presence was just left. And, and I sat there for, I don't know how long, I really don't, it felt like hours just watching this heavenly host circle above me, overwhelmed by the majesty of this army that was there. And, and I just sat there in wonder and amazement. And again, it felt like hours. And, and I would open my eyes every once in a while just to see, and it, nothing was there, and I would close them, and there it was again. Until finally, after, again, what felt like hours, I almost expected to see daylight come, they, they start just moving off and they're gone. And then even in my mind's eye, I could see the ceiling again and I opened up my eyes and there it was, nothing was there. And I look over the clock and it had only been a few minutes that had passed, even though it felt like forever. But in that moment, there was a peace that just swept over me. I was no longer afraid. I was no longer concerned about what was around me. I closed my eyes and I went into one of the deepest sleeps I had in a long time. And let me tell you what happened the next morning when I woke up. I had no concerns about what anybody else was thinking about me, about whether I had the answers or not. I just wanted to go worship my God. I just wanted to go tell people about who my God was. I just wanted to live my life for this God because I'd seen the grandeur of the God of the heavenly hosts and my all had been restored to me. That's what all does to you. It makes you want to live for God. It makes you want to give yourself to God. Listen, I'm just, I'm so afraid that there are a lot of you watching this and you've lost your awe of God. God has just become familiar and normal. And because you're losing your awe of God, it is distorting your life. It's leading to corruption in your life. It's leading to a counterfeit worship. It's, it's leading to a calloused heart. And most importantly, it's leading to be ill-prepared for the moment when you're gonna stand before Almighty God. Because if you are not in awe of God, you will not be ready to meet God when he comes. And let me go ahead and tell you, one day, every single one of us is gonna stand before God face to face. That's exactly what he was getting at in verse 12. 
He said, guys, because of all this brokenness, make no mistake about it, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. I don't know about you, but I'm messing myself when I hear that from a prophet about God coming when I'm living against him. What a scary thought that God himself will come. And just in case you think, well, he's only talking to Israel, let me go ahead and give you a newsflash. You can flip over to the book of Romans and you can see that that's true for every single one of us, believer or unbeliever. I, I want to finish up with this passage of Scripture. It's in the New Testament, book of Romans, from the Apostle Paul in chapter 14. I just want to read the second half of verse 10 to verse 12. Listen to what it says. It says, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. i tell you what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying that one day every single one of us will stand before Almighty God and we will give an account of this life that we have lived. And there are some of us, when we stand before Almighty God, it is going to be a day of rejoicing and reward and it is going to be a beautiful celebration. And there are others of us that it is going to be a day of fear and trembling and eternal regret. And it all comes back to what do you believe about your God? Are you in awe of him or are you treating him flippantly like he's just some guy on this planet that we give a little attention to? If we do not have awe of God, we will not be ready to meet with God. But let me go ahead and tell you the one thing that will most make you ready to meet God and have awe of God is this beautiful message called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in case you don't know the message, I want to make sure it's clear. Here's what it is. Every single one of us has just like the nation of Israel rebelled against God. We've had calloused hearts. We've, we've worshiped ourselves over God. We, our moral compass has just been totally broken. We have rebelled and transgressed against our God. That's what that word transgression means that you heard back in verse four. It, it means to revolt against God, to rebel against him. Every single one of us has done that and we're guilty of it. And because of that, we have made ourselves enemies of the infinite God. That is not a good place to be. Only punishment will come with that. But our God loves us and he knows we couldn't change the story. So he sent his son, infinite God, to come, absorb the wrath that should come our way, to pay the penalty of our rebellion and our transgression, to bear it upon his shoulders on the cross so that you and I could be forgiven and so that we could be restored by faith in Christ into a right relationship with God. And the moment that happens, the day comes and we stand before our God. You know what we're going to hear? We're going to hear our Father see Jesus in us and say, come here, my child. Let me embrace you. I welcome you to my eternity. All because we trusted in Christ Jesus. Listen, nothing should give you more awe in your bones than that message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And nothing will change your life more than restoring your awe of God. So I think if we need to do anything this morning as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to remember the gospel of Jesus and celebrate it. And we're going to do so as we take the Lord's Supper in a moment. And we're going to declare that our God is worthy of our praise and Jesus is worthy. And I pray you get your hearts ready. You might need to get your Lord's Supper supplies. But before we move on, I got to say to some of you who are here who are watching, there are some of you and you're not yet believers in Jesus. You know about Jesus. You may feel good feelings toward Jesus, but you've never declared your faith in him. You've never given your life to him. And here's what I want to say to you. You will never, ever discover your awe of God until you let him heal your heart. God has been trying to get your attention. He's tried to bless you and you paid no attention. He's used hard circumstances to get your attention and you have not turned to him. And he's saying, would you stop being so calloused? 
would you look at me and realize only I can save you? And would you come to me? I want to show you life. I want to restore your heart. And God is begging you to see him for who he is and to bow down before him in awe and trust in him. And all you got to do is say, God, forgive me. I've belittled you. I've devalued you. Forgive me. I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready to give you my life because you deserve it. And the moment you make that decision, his spirit comes inside of you and he shows you what all really is. And if you're ready to make that decision, we want to partner with you. We have pastors who are ready to pray with you, to show you his power. You just got to let us know. You can do so by texting the word next step to 94253 or by going to our website, filler.org slash next step. In fact, that little slide is going to be up during the next entire song of worship to give you a chance to respond, to let us know that you're ready to place your faith in Jesus Christ. But listen, all of us have a reason to be wowed by our God. And we need to worship him and declare that he is worthy. And so this next song, let's get our hearts ready. And when the song is over, I'll lead us as we take the Lord's Supper.